0: It has been called America's Forgotten Tragedy, but for many Chicagoans it has never been far from their minds, affecting entire neighborhoods and many generations since. The Eastland disaster, in which an excursion ship filled with families excited about a day of picnicking rolled on its side while docked in the Chicago River, trapping hundreds underwater while horrified onlookers were helpless to save them, is one of the worst accidents to occur on the Great Lakes. I'm Tommy Henry, host of the Chicago History Podcast. Because of the subject matter in today's episode, parental guidance is suggested. When it opened in 1905, Western Electric Company in Hawthorne, a section of Cicero in the suburbs just west of Chicago, employed approximately 2,000 people in blue-collar assembly jobs, building telephones, washing machines, vacuums, and the cables needed to connect phones across the country. Ten years later, in 1915, the company had grown to 20,000 The area around the factory was growing as well, with homes popping up nearby for workers who may have thought they had found a job they could enjoy into retirement. Western Electric had their own fire brigade, had musicians who played for workers during their lunch breaks, and once a year, the Hawthorne Club, which had formed as a social and educational organization for the Western Electric's employees, had a big summer picnic outing for employees and their families. This was to be a relaxing day for those many employees who worked six-day weeks, often making less than $17 a week, about $433 in today's money. More than 7000 tickets had been sold for a spot on the five vessels chartered for the day's round trip voyage from downtown Chicago to Washington Park in Michigan City, Indiana, approximately 38 miles southeast across Lake Michigan. At 6:30 a.m. on July 24th, 1915, under misty skies, people dressed in their finest outfits began boarding the first ship, the SS Eastland, known as the speed queen of the Great Lakes, at the Clark Street dock at a rate of about 50 passengers per minute, with pairs of children being counted as one adult and babies not being counted at all. The deck of the ship quickly became crowded, so many went below and were treated to lavish sitting rooms and musicians. Between 6.41 and 6.53 a.m., the boat began to list toward the wharf as the crowds first walked aboard it. It straightened out for a moment then began to lean toward the water. Measures were taken to straighten the ship. By 710 a.m., the maximum twenty five hundred passengers was reached. Among those in the crowd on the Eastland is George Sindelar, a Western electric foreman, accompanied by his wife and five children. A Western Electric Company cabinet maker, James Novotnoy, was there with his wife and their two children. Mary and Stella Malik, two sisters from Cicero, were also on board the ship. Before the Eastland was able to leave the dock, it began to list port toward the water. The ballast, used to stabilize the ship by bringing water into the ballast tank, thus lowering the center of gravity, had been ordered emptied by the ship's captain, Harry Peterson, during the boarding process. The engineer, Joseph Erickson, opened the valves to bring in water through the one ballast hole to correct the list. The list toward the water continued, first at a 45-degree angle, which caused numerous passengers near the dock to jump off the boat. Sometime between 7.28 a.m. and 7.30 a.m., the SS Eastland toppled over on its side. In mud and 20 feet of water, less than an hour after boarding had started. The majority of those left on the deck were thrown into the water, scrambling to stay afloat in heavy outfits and boots. Many never learned to swim and grabbed anything or anyone in a vain attempt to stay above the water, pulling those who could tread water under. Some on deck were able to hold onto the railing and pulled themselves and others to safety. The screams of those in the water filled the air and could be heard for blocks. Uh, The docks, horrified onlookers, threw anything they could find, chairs, wood crates, to those in the water to use as life preservers, striking unconscious, many trying to stay alive. As the ship had not left the dock, the life preservers on board the ship were still locked up, but would have been difficult to find in the darkness of the water, even if they were not. Inside the ship, even before water started rushing in, many guests were incapacitated or killed instantly when items such as chairs, tables, pianos, lamps, ice boxes, and decorations that were not bolted down were thrown with enough force when the boat toppled to crush people. Others were trampled to death under the feet of panicked persons trying to escape the inside of the ship. On the exposed side of the ship, nearby construction workers with acetylene torches began to cut holes in the hull of the ship. The captain of the ship, Harry Peterson, who had been able to get to safety, protested the cutting of the steel and the welder's actions as they were, quote, ruining his ship and was promptly arrested, likely to keep him safe from the angry mob. One welder was quoted as saying, referring to the captain, quote, He told me to stop. I did stop for a minute, but the police arrested him, and I went back to work again. From the hole I helped to make in the hole, we pulled three persons to safety. There were many, many people who risked their own lives to help pull people out of the water. According to EastlandDisaster.org, the bridge tender at the Dearborn Street Bridge, Lawrence Frank Northrup, had been waiting to open the bridge for the SS Eastland when he saw the ship turn on its side. Northrup jumped into a nearby lifeboat and raced to pull those he could out of the water, rescuing 23 people. The Lincoln Journal-Star newspaper in Nebraska later reported a man at the river contemplating suicide because of a lack of work instead jumped into action when the ship capsized, rescuing nine persons before he himself needed to be pulled from the water. Rescue teams and divers transported gear to the wharf and suited up in those old-timey diving suits, which weighed close to 200 pounds and utilized weight belts, lead boots, and large helmets. They also had a large tube for oxygen and another signal line prone to getting caught in the ship. 17-year-old Charles R. E. Bowles, who went by Reggie, that's spelled like Reggie but said with a hard G, was a local troublemaker, but a top-notch swimmer. When he heard the clamor, Reggie raced to the river on his motorcycle and fought his way through the crowds and police and dove into the river in his swim trunks. A July 26, 1915, Rock Island Argus newspaper article claimed Reggie explored parts of the hole where professional divers refused to go and brought to the surface 40 victims. Bowles was warned repeatedly by authorities and physicians to stop, but continued diving throughout the day and into the evening. Two of the bodies he brought to the surface were those of a mother still holding her baby. At one point, police brought an exhausted Reggie to the police station, wrapped him in a blanket, and gave him coffee. After all he'd done throughout the day, he still pleaded, Just let me rest a little and I will be back. I want to go on with the work because I know where there are several bodies. I will be back tomorrow. A little more about Reggie. At age 11, he saved two friends from drowning, and just one year before his heroics at the Eastland, Bowles raced into a burning building at 63rd and Halsted to rescue a baby. Helen Repa, a Western electric nurse on her way to the boats when the Eastland toppled over, jumped into action, helping organize the chaos by tending to the survivors and commandeering passing cars to take those less injured away from the scene. Repa later wrote, I would simply go into the street, stop the first automobile that came along, load it up with people, and tell the owner or driver where to take them. And not one driver said no. Repa urged local restaurants to send soup and coffee to the hospitals and to the docks for rescuers. Much as they did for the Iroquois Theater fire, Marshall Fields and Carson Perry Scott, two prominent Chicago department stores at the time, opened their doors to police and rescuers to take blankets and cheats for the survivors and the dead. While mouth-to-mouth resuscitation had been in use in France since 1740, what most know as cardiopulmonary resuscitation or CPR using mouth-to-mouth and chest compressions was not in use until 1960. What the roughly 75 policemen on hand at the Eastland had was a crude breathing apparatus known as the lung motor. Sadly, none of those police knew how to use it. Forty miles away in Lockport, Illinois, the Bear Trap Dam in the drainage canal was closed to slow the river flow. The current of the river was slowed from eight miles per hour to two miles to keep bodies from being carried away. Seven priests arrived to hear confessions or to administer last rites. Thousands crowded the streets, bridges, and nearby buildings to gawk at their fellow man's misery. People in dozens of small boats some of them charging admission, tried to get close to the Eastland to get a better look, hindering the efforts of divers and rescuers. One man even sold prime spots on the sixth floor of a nearby building for people to better see the carnage. By 8 a.m., most of the living had been pulled from the water, Then came the gruesome task of retrieving those who did not survive. One of the most memorable pictures taken that day was of Leonard E. Olson, a Chicago fireman holding the lifeless body of a small child, a look of horror and anguish in his eyes. In 1908, seven years before this horrible day, Olson was awarded the Lambert Tree Medal for Bravery by the city of Chicago for stopping a team of runaway horses. Within 90 minutes of the tragedy, Western Electric, the company behind the event, established several information bureaus. Harry B. Thayer, president of Western Electric, would later say, quote, "...we are victims of a disaster so awful that the world has stood aghast at its horrors, even in this year of horrors. Of our fellow workers, 500 have gone down to sudden death. Many are mourning for members of their families and many for friends and acquaintances. Gloom hangs heavy." The next day, on Sunday, July 25th, the Boston Globe ran the headline, Estimate Loss of 1810, that's 1,810, in capsized steamship. Much like in today's race to be the first with the news, even if the facts are not in, an article in the same issue of the Boston Globe stated a coroner's physician named Dr. Joseph Stringer issued a bulletin at 3 o'clock claiming he had personally seen and counted 1,300 of the dead. Local ministers claimed church attendance that Sunday, the day after the disaster, had increased significantly over previous weeks. Mayor William Big Bill Thompson, who was representing Chicago at the Panama Pacific International Exposition in San Francisco, returned to Chicago by train upon hearing the news. Thompson received a wire from President Woodrow Wilson, which read, I'm sure I speak the universal feeling of the people of the country in expressing my profound sympathy and sorrow in the presence of the great disaster which saddens so many homes. On the day of the disaster, bodies of the dead were taken to numerous places, adding to much confusion for those trying to get news about their loved ones. One of the more key places where bodies were brought was the 2nd Regiment Armory in the West Loop. Bodies were lined up in rows of 85 for identification. Just before midnight, the crowd that waited outside was allowed in 20 at a time. In addition to grieving families, the morbidly curious also found their way in, as well as thieves looking to steal valuables from the dead. Pickpockets also targeted those waiting in line. Small children and babies were not allowed into the armory. Police and neighbors cared for the kids while their relatives searched the hundreds of bodies. The American Red Cross was on hand to aid those overcome by the events. The site of the armory later became a television production studio – Oprah Winfrey's Harpo Studios was based there – before being demolished in 2016 and turned into the new corporate headquarters for McDonald's in 2018. Over the next few days, all but one of those at the armory had been identified. The last was a small boy, tagged number 396, who the police and morgue workers called Little Feller. Little Feller's body was eventually taken to a nearby funeral home where two children recognized him as their friend Willie Novotny, age seven. No one had claimed Willie because his parents, James, the Western Electric cabinet maker, Willie's mother, Agnes, and Willie's nine-year-old sister, Mamie, had all died on the Eastland as well. Novotny's grandmother, Mrs. Agnes Martinek, confirmed the identification when she arrived at the Undertaker's, unwrapped a parcel, and handed a pair of never-worn brown knickerbockers to the police. "'If it's Willie, he's got pants like these,' she said. It was a new suit he went to the picnic in, and two pairs of pants came with it. These are the others.' The pants matched. When the Novotny family was buried on July 31st, more than 5,000 came to pay their respects. It was said the funeral procession stretched for more than a mile. The town of Cicero was hit especially hard at a time when funerals were held in family homes with a large black cloth draped outside to signify the loss of a family member. It was reported every third house on many blocks had the black crepe draped outside. Sadly, this led to more opportunities for ghoulish thieves to rob those in mourning. Undertakers worked around the clock to keep up with demand. Mrs. A. Szymanski, wife of an undertaker at 2947 South 49th Avenue in Cicero, was quoted, My husband cried because he could not get the bodies out fast enough. She had said he had not eaten or slept since the catastrophe. While some burials happened soon after the disaster, Wednesday, July 28th would become known as Black Wednesday, where an estimated 700 funerals were held. As there were not enough hearses to transport the dead, Marshall Field and company offered the use of 39 of their trucks. 52 gravediggers working 12 hours a day and digging graves by hand with shovels had great difficulty finishing in time. More than 130 graves had to be dug at the Bohemian National Cemetery alone. Due to a shortage of caskets, funerals were delayed. Chicago was just not ready for this many dead. Mary and Stella Malick, the two sisters from Cicero, were buried in the same casket because their parents could not get another, according to Reverend J.F. Rosinski, deacon of St. Mary's Church at West 30th Street and 49th Avenue. An article in the July 27th Chicago Tribune reported relatives on average would be paid $500,000 in insurance. $500,000 in 1915, by the way, would be close to $12.762 million in today's money. This proved to be wildly inaccurate. Money did start coming in, however, from large companies and the wealthy to help ease the financial burden to families. Benefits were put together by performers at outdoor events, movie houses, and theaters to help raise money for the victims' families. At Wiegman Park, better known later as Wrigley Field, all proceeds from the July 29th baseball game would be donated to the relief of the victims. Not just fans paid admission to the game that night. Everyone who was at the ballpark did, including the players, coaches, and even the umpires. An electrical trade organization donated the proceeds from their annual event at Ravinia to the relief fund. While there was much finger-pointing as to the cause of the accident, this much is true. The ship designer had never designed a passenger ship, only freight ships which are meant to carry cargo low in the hold. The Eastland, commissioned in 1902 and named before its maiden voyage in 1903, was built to carry 500 people and was modified many times before 1915. It also had two significant incidents, one in 1904 and one in 1906, which caused great concern, and in 1912, an incident where it listed to a 25-degree lean while loading passengers in Cleveland. One year after the events of the Titanic in 1912, additional lifeboats were added to the Eastland, making it even more top-heavy. A few weeks before the Eastland disaster, 50 tons of concrete was poured on the rotting deck... Many Western Electric employees later claimed the excursion was mandatory and threats of firings of those who didn't attend were introduced. There were accusations by the Eastland officials that the entire crowd on the deck raced from one side of the ship to the other to see something, which was refuted by many as the number of people on the deck allowed very little movement. Western Electric President Harry Thayer was so helpful immediately after the incident, Distance himself from any liability as he claimed it wasn't Western Electric, the company, who put the event together, it was the Hawthorne Club. There were numerous committees formed to investigate this horrible tragedy, but it still took many years to conclude all criminal and civil litigation in the Eastland matter. Blame was focused primarily on Joseph Erickson, the engineer, for mismanaging the ballast tanks to keep the Eastland from listing. Erickson died years earlier in 1919 of heart disease. There was strong evidence against Captain Harry Peterson for ordering the ballast tank emptied before passengers were brought on board, which made the already top-heavy ship even more unsteady. Neither Peterson nor the officers of the steamship company were ever prosecuted. All charges were dropped, and the owners avoided any findings of negligence. Civil lawsuits to settle more than 800 wrongful death claims carried on for two decades. Maritime law limited liability to that of the value of the ship, which in the case of the heavily damaged Eastland was $46,000. Taking priority in those funds were the salvage company hired to tow the wreck from the scene and the coal company that provided the fuel. In the end victims and families received little or nothing at all. The Eastland was eventually raised in August and recommissioned as the USS Wilmette and stationed at the Great Lakes Naval Base before being sold for scrap in 1947. On that day, July 24th, 1915, 844 people lost their lives, including 22 entire families. In addition to Willie Novotny's family, The family of Western Electric foreman George Sindelar, including his wife and five children, also perished. Seventy percent of those who died were under the age of 25. The buildings on what used to be called Water Street along the river were demolished in the 1920s to make way for Wacker Drive. There is a plaque overlooking the river commemorating the Eastland, and an Eastland memorial was unveiled at the Bohemian National Cemetery in Chicago in 2015, To commemorate the 100th anniversary, Bohemian National on Chicago's northwest side holds the largest number of victims from the disaster with 134. There is an app I highly recommend if you are visiting Chicago or live here already. That allows you to use your phone or tablet to explore the city, including the Eastland site, using site-specific, interactive, immersive multimedia experiences called the Chicago Zero Zero Project. Uh, This was developed, by the way, in partnership between the Chicago History Museum and filmmaker Jeffrey Allen Rhodes. I will have a link to this in the show's notes. Please check out the Chicago History Podcast social media pages for pictures and research materials. Also, feel free to let me know if you have any questions about anything discussed. If you have a topic you think might be a good fit for a future episode of the Chicago History Podcast, send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. Thanks, as always, to John K. Schneider for creating the Chicago History Podcast logo and the art used on the social media pages. He can be found at angel eyes art JKS on Instagram or via email at angeleyesartjks at gmail.com. As always, like, subscribe, and kindly review this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, and tell a friend. It helps us get the word out and reach new history fans and fans of Chicago. Get out and explore when possible, learn more about whatever city you live in, and stay safe. Thanks for listening.